0: Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything.
1: What is with this verse? It makes me cringe. Just thinking about marriage stresses me out. I mean, sharing your entire life with someone, compromising, settling down, and all that just for a 50-50 chance we even stay married? Ugh, my hands get sweaty just thinking about it. But this verse is in the Bible, so I feel like I have to follow it. Okay, Google. Ephesians 5:22 through 24... Meaning. Women only. Okay, let's see. Not that one. Definitely not that one. This one looks like it might work. Personally, this verse does not offend me, and I consider myself a very strong and independent woman. Okay, seems legit. Let's keep reading. Men and women have separate and different roles in a relationship. And I think it is important to establish that different doesn't mean one is better than or more important than the other, but rather, complementary. This verse means that I am to allow my husband to be the head of our household, that as a wife, I should trust in him to make decisions for our family the way I trust in the Lord. Okay, I get that men and women are different, but your husband isn't the Lord, so why should you submit to him in the same way? It makes it sound like the husband gets more power. Let's see what else people have to say.
2: This is hard. My husband and I have been married for almost five decades. That's 50 years. When my husband and I disagree and want to throw in the towel, we try to remember the verse that Paul wrote before this one, which is Ephesians 5.21.
0: Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ.
2: So instead of following through on our impulse, we first try to submit or surrender both our wills to God. So neither has more authority than the other. Then we surrender both our wills to each other, so we put the other's interest before our own. When we both say yes to that, it makes us equal within the partnership.
1: Well, that sounds nice. If my future husband says yes to doing that, but what if I make myself that vulnerable and he just leaves me or takes advantage of me? Let's see what else is on here.
3: When I was a non-believer, these verses struck me as evidence that Christians were stuck in the very distant past.
1: Thank you. I feel these verses are totally useless to women nowadays.
3: Now, though, I read them with consideration of the history and culture that they came from, and I actually rather like them. To me, the most important part of this message is in verse 25 after Paul tells us women to submit to our husbands.
0: Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her.
3: This was a radical statement at the time because back then, men had all the power. Women were essentially thought of as property. Paul, knowing that, tells the husband to love his wife as Christ did the church. That is, take the initiative in making a sacrifice for his wife. The man had to initiate it because he held all the power. Paul was defining marriage here in terms of mutual submission that protected both parties from being exploited.
1: Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. But what about the part that still says wives have to submit to their husbands? Do we just throw that part out the window?
0: I used to have a really hard time with this verse until I got married. When I would get offended by it, I would place it in like a time capsule and say it was only meant for people back then. But then I started to see it as super relevant to today. I mean, until kind of recently, women were subject and vulnerable to men because men provided them with safety, shelter, and financial security. But now we live in a time where women can support themselves on their own. And we're actually encouraged to be independent and strong individuals, which makes it really hard to swallow the idea of giving up any of that independence to another person, especially a man. Right? But we can choose now. So what if instead we choose to use our authority to become vulnerable to our husbands so that they actually can build us up and sacrifice for us? Then when we choose to give up some of our authority to them, It's an act of love that shows that we rely on them. We can fall into them and rest in them instead of just feeling like we have to do it all ourselves all the time.
1: Wow, this was way more information than I wanted. I understand the verses more, but I also feel even more overwhelmed by the idea of getting married. I mean, so what if I sacrifice my independence and do all these things to be a good wife? It doesn't guarantee that my husband will do the same, Or that we won't get a divorce just because it didn't work out. It it just doesn't seem worth it. Sorry, ladies.
4: Good job. (laughs) Excellent. (sighs) There's no life without risk, but it is worth it, or so I shall now make the case. Um, I'm Greg, teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Really good to see you all this morning and to worship with you and to be in God's presence. Uh, I'll I'll get to the skit in a little bit um, and talk about that dicey issue, what's up with that headship stuff. Uh, But before I dive into talking about marriage, I wanted to say a a kind of preliminary word to folks who are unmarried. Um, First, I will be sharing some principles here that apply to everybody, and so I encourage you to not tune this out because you're not married and we're talking about married. Uh, don't go playing Pokemon on your, on your phone or anything like that. Stay tuned because uh, you'll get some things out of this. Second thing I, I want to address is just this. There's sort of a widespread assumption out there in church world, um, and, and here in church world, I think it's sometimes shared here, that, that the norm is to be married, that everyone's supposed to get married. You're supposed to. So if you're not married, you're not doing a supposed to. Uh, there's, if you're not married, there's, there's something off here. Or if you're not married, uh, the idea is that you're, you're, you were wishing you were married, and you're hoping to be married, and you're longing to be married, and you're just waiting in a holding pattern for that, that, that Mr. or Miss Wright to come along, that true love, that soulmate who's gonna complete you, and fulfill you, and, 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 and end your loneliness forever, and take away your sexual frustration. And I wanna tell you that that assumption is a load of caca, right? It's a load of caca. That's Greek for something else I can't translate. uh, See, here's the thing Jesus never got married, so it must be okay not to get married. Paul never got married, so it must be okay not to get married. And and yes, and Paul and Jesus both even say, they even say that that, uh, you're better off not getting married. And no married couple said amen to that, so that's good. No, they say it's a kingdom advantage not to get married, so it must really be okay to be married. Uh, And this idea that there's a soulmate out there who's just going to complete you and make your life full and worth living finally is just a load of caca. There's no one out there that's going to do that. And there's no one out there that's supposed to do that because people aren't supposed to give us fullness of life. Jesus Christ is. All right. Amen. Amen. So, you know, it's okay to want to get married. I'm not saying that that's that's a bad thing, but don't let it define you and don't put your life on hold waiting for it. Uh, Life is always in the now. And so I encourage you right now to get fullness of life from Jesus Christ. Right now, live the full passion of life. And right now, submit yourself to God and ask, how can he use you to further the kingdom? Because Paul and Jesus were right. There are advantages when it comes to furthering the kingdom. There are advantages uh, to being single. And so ask yourself the question, how might you be used to this advantage uh, to further the kingdom? But don't put anything on hold. Amen. All right. Now let's talk about marriage. Um, marriage has... Fallen on some hard times as of late. Uh, about 45% of all marriages end in divorce. Now, that's actually down from about 10, 15 years ago. But the only reason it's down a couple of points from 10, 15 years ago is that more and more people aren't getting married. as move in together. Um, and so there's, even the belief in the institution of marriage is kind of becoming undone. Marriage is kind of sort of becoming unglued. Uh, a little history here will kind of explain why. Uh, in most of history... Uh, up until the relatively recent past, in most of history and most cultures, uh, the reason why people got married and the reason why they stay married w- was this. This is kind of the glue that held it together. On the one hand, you needed to have kids in order to ensure the survival of the tribe. And then later on in history, you need to have kids to pass on the family business. And in most of history, uh, women and children needed the man uh, to protect them from invaders and protect them from wild animals. You know, it was a brute and barbarous world. And so the the man was looked to as being the protector. He was also looked to as being the provider. He had to go out and do the hunting and and things like that. So they were dependent on him. And in most of history, um, there was just a strong social expectation that when you're married, it's going to last your whole life. A strong tradition about that. And and divorce was really frowned on if it was allowed at all. And that was the glue that held marriage together. Now, it changed significantly in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century in Western culture. We went through this thing called the Industrial Revolution. And, and what came as a result of that was that people no longer got married and married uh, in order to have children to, to, for the survival of the tribe. That was no longer an issue. And they no longer got married and stay married to have children to pass on the family business. And that was no longer an issue. And they no longer needed the protection against invaders and, and uh, wild animals. That wasn't uh, a factor anymore. But they did still look to the man to provide financially. And they were dependent, culturally dependent on the man to provide financially. And there still was a strong social expectation that your marriage would last your whole life. And a strong stigma against divorce. And so you still had some glue. Now what's happened in modern times in the West, the last well, four decades or so, is that we've lost all of those little glue holders we no longer are concerned about the tribe surviving uh no longer need to worry about passing on a family business that's not why people get married stay married anyways um and and now that women have joined the workforce uh they no longer need to look to the man to be the financial provider and in terms of social expectation well that it's not just not that strong the the social pressure to stay married for all your life So what it means is that all of the the, the glue that held marriage together in the past, the reasons why people got married and stayed married, all those things are now gone. So it's come unglued. The only thing we have left when people get married and stay married is preference, personal preference. You prefer it. And and so it's kind of a consumer model of marriage. You get married because this person's attracted to you and they seem kind of sexy and 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 they, they are interesting to talk to, and they're fun to be around, and you share the same point of view, so you get married. Now, the trouble is that that's not a very strong glue, because people change, and opinions change. And Mr. or Mrs. Hot, she was sexy and attractive 20 years ago, but now, not so much maybe. And they were interesting, but now you find them boring. They used to be fun, but you, know, you kind of lost that, too. And you used to share the same point of view, but maybe your point of view has changed. And so now you just don't have that in common. So there's no, no preference there. And what happens is you start looking around for somebody that you prefer more, who still seems a little attractive and sexy and fun and interesting, laughs at your jokes and, and, and whatnot. And so it's not surprisingly really, that, that this, this institution has kind of come unglued in our culture. Um, It just doesn't work well as a consumer model. Now, what we're going to see here is that from a biblical point of view, this is what we want to have, preference shouldn't be the glue that gets us into marriage and that keeps us in marriage or not. It's got nothing about preference. Well, it helps to like your spouse, but but we're going to see it goes deeper than that. So uh, the, the foundational passage on marriage in the Bible is found in Genesis 2. God created the man and brought the animals to him for him to name and to find a suitable partner, but none of the animals worked out. So it says, So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had just taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones. Or it could be translated, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Interesting passage. Okay, there's this phrase, suitable helper. That's, the Lord's looking for a suitable helper for for Adam. Um, It has the connotation of being a complementary equal. This is why Adam says, Ah, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Uh, He's really saying this is the same essence as me. It's almost like this is a new version of me. Me all over again. But with some curious and interesting, beautiful differences. And so so uh, it, it, there's this commonality. We, we are the same bone, same flesh. In fact, what, what you have here, it's almost like God made two out of the one. OK, so he was just sort of the first DNA. made two out of the one. And then in marriage, the covenant marriage, you're brought back together again and you become this one flesh. It's like, like you become one person again. You're reunited. And this one flesh idea, uh, it goes beyond sexual intercourse. It includes that. That's the sign of the covenant. But, but it, it, it's, it's a really referring to a new reality that's created when two people enter into this covenant. And what marriage is about is that when you, there's a pledge uh, before God and before witnesses, before the community who will help you live this out, there's this commitment that you will be for each other uh, for the rest of your life. You, you are bound there, and that creates this one flesh reality. Uh, and, and so in a real, real sense, the couple is supposed to operate like one person, a suitable partner. Now, the idea of suitable partner also has this connotation of, of partnering for a purpose. There's a, there's, a, there's a task to be done, and this partnership is to fulfill that task. Um, it, it, that's why the NIV translated suitable helper. But helper doesn't have the connotation of an assistant. Like Eve is just going to be Adam's secretary or some kind of assistant there, his gopher or whatever. No, um, it, 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 it's it, uh, it, it's it's. A complementary equality, you both carry that out together, sharing responsibility for it. And you can see that just by asking the question, well, what was the task that they were, that they came together for? And the answer is, first thing the Lord said to human beings, maybe the only command we've ever fulfilled to the full, and that is be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. Now, in accomplishing that task, unless you're really bad at anatomy, you wouldn't want to say Eve was just Adam's assistant, (laughs) Now she had a little bigger role to play than that. Okay, so this is equal partnership. And they fulfill the task of being fruitful and multiplying. And then they fulfill the task of, of uh, carrying out God's dominion, having dominion on the earth and the animal kingdom, his loving care of the earth and the animal kingdom. So from a kingdom perspective, marriage is this covenant you enter into to create a one flesh reality, a reality where a couple are suitable partners for the carrying out of, of, of God's will. You're doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. It's partnership with a purpose. That's how we should construe marriage. Now, when Jesus comes into this world, he inaugurates the kingdom. So the kingdom now becomes sort of the defining framework for a marriage. Jesus said in Matthew 6, uh, seek first the kingdom of God. In everything you do, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, to seek it first, it's not something you can do sometimes, but not others. Or in some circumstances, but not others. Or some people, but not others. Or apply to some issues, but not others. To seek first, Jesus is saying, is to make the kingdom the highest priority in your life. All the time, in all circumstances, regarding all issues with all people. Uh, Our life is to be lived, seeking first the kingdom of God. In fact, whether you're married or unmarried, you've got to know if you're a follower of Jesus, you are here on assignment. You have a task, a job description. Uh, We are all called to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God, right? Representatives of the kingdom of God. Our job is to represent Christ to the world, to manifest the character of our king uh, to the world in a way that would invite them to then come into this kingdom and and, and, and to be able to see what it is to live a different kind of life under a different kind of a king. That's our job description. And there's no compartmentalizing of it. It's supposed to apply to everything. And therefore, it applies to marriage. You can think of marriage in in, in the kingdom as as God bringing together two people to create this one flesh reality, be suitable partners for the furthering of the kingdom of God. God is is creating a dynamic duo for the kingdom. And you come together for that purpose. And we're submitting every aspect of our life, whether single or married, uh, to that purpose. That's to define us in everything we do. I'll be honest. Uh, I usually lie, but I'm going to be honest in this moment. When I married my lovely wife, Shelley, the kingdom was not on my mind. <laughs> a lot of other things were on my mind. Kingdom wasn't one of them. Uh, you know, I, I, I married her because she was attractive and she was sexy and she was fun. And we shared the same point of view and it made sense to marry her. Uh, but the kingdom was not on my mind. There's a little bit, maybe a little bit of a, a, a quarter of a kingdom motivation in that I was aware on some level that I, I, I really, that she was to be my suitable partner and that She's very practical in nature. She's very practical. And I sensed on some level that I needed her to help navigate the world of normal people, which I've always found challenging. And and so so there's that much of a kingdom motivation. But otherwise, it was not kingdom at all. And I bet 98, maybe 99, maybe 100% of folks who are listening to this message right now who are married, the kingdom wasn't much on your mind either. Maybe there's some exceptions, but... We were just in other places. And that's fine because we're all on a learning curve here, right? What's, what, what matters, and it's the only thing that matters, is that we're learning it now. And so now's the time where we start. To, it's all about retrofitting the kingdom into our life. I just find that That's kind of the main task is you've got a stream of life going. And now you're learning about this radical kingdom stuff, so you've got to kind of fit it in somehow. Um, but, so we're, we're retrofitting uh, the kingdom into our marriages. Uh, but this is the time to start asking. I want to encourage all couples to start asking the question, what would it look like for us as a couple to understand that our job is to help each other seek first the kingdom of God? What would it look like for us as a couple to see ourselves as a dynamic duo for the kingdom? You know, I encourage couples to start thinking in terms of how you can support one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, even challenge one another to be the best kingdom people that you can be. For, for most couples, um Yes. For most, for most couples, part of your kingdom objective will be to, uh, it's about raising kids and then, then helping raise grandkids. And so you want to live in the question as a dynamic duo for the kingdom. Ask the question, how can we together, how can we work together to raise our kids so that they grow up seeking first the kingdom of God? How, how do we raise our kids so they grow up with a Jesus heart and they have a kingdom outlook rather than a standard American outlook and they have kingdom values rather than standard American values and they have kingdom priorities rather than standard American priorities. How can we work together to, to raise kids who don't buy into the consumeristic culture and who don't buy into the violence and they don't buy into the immorality of the culture and they don't buy into the me first mindset of the culture. How do we raise kingdom kids who are passionate for Jesus? And then they ask the question of the dynamic duo. How can we work together to exert a greater influence on our friends and a greater influence on our neighborhood and anyone else that God brings into your sphere of influence? And, and uh, the, I encourage you to, to see yourselves as partners in ministry and actually do ministry together. Part of your ministry is sacrificing your resources to support the church and to support uh, other ministries that God leads you to. Uh, see yourselves as doing that together, making the sacrifice together. And then I encourage you to look for opportunities to actually minister together. That can be a real bonding experience for people. Um, you know, you might think of volunteering at the church together or at the food shelf or in a homeless shelter or the humane society, wherever God leads you. But to do it together, you're a dynamic duo for the kingdom. I'll tell you this. Understanding that your togetherness, your one fleshness, your suitable partnering has a purpose greater than yourselves and greater than your preferences. Understanding that is the best thing you can do for your marriage. We've lost all the other glue that there has been in history that holds marriages together. But the kingdom is the strongest glue that there is. If you've got that purpose together, yes, if that's your objective, that can bind you in ways that that nothing else possibly could. And and part of the reason why is because it puts everything else in perspective. It puts the problems and and the disagreements and the irritations of being married in perspective. If you're looking at those things just through the eyes of your own preference, they can seem so big. Problems are huge. Disagreements are huge. Irritations are just intolerable. Uh, because all you're seeing is how it conflicts with your preference. I would prefer if you didn't make that sound when you chewed your food. You know, <laughs> I really would prefer you know, if you just wouldn't do that. Why do you always have to? And so that, that's what's real to you. But it's because you're staring at it because you don't have anything bigger to look at. It's like, it's like um, me going, wow, this print is so big. It's so big. I can't believe how big this print is. It's overwhelming. Well, it's because I'm staring at it too close. If I can zoom out, it's pretty small print, you know, because i got a bigger focus. So, also, if you have a marriage and you understand that the focus, you're seeking first the kingdom. The focus is on the kingdom. It's about the kingdom. You're together for the kingdom. Well, that puts everything else, makes everything else. The bigger your vision of the kingdom is, the smaller all the irritations are of being married. All right? It's the best thing you can do for your marriage. Be a dynamic duo. Amen. I'll have an, another honest moment here with you. Um, Shelly and I have not always been a dynamic duo for the kingdom. In fact, truth is, you go back 20 some years ago and our marriage looked more like a dynamic disaster than a dynamic duo. It was, it was tough going there for a while. We hung in there. I'm so thankful we did. And we worked through it. And we discovered a profound love for each other that we didn't think was possible. And, and I think we've grown to actually function as a pretty solid. Dynamic duel for the kingdom. Uh, It's, uh, yes, amen, amen. Like everyone else, we've got growth areas, but you know, I, I am so acutely aware, I'm not just saying this, I'm acutely aware that I could not do what I do if I didn't have a suitable partner in Shelley. Uh, from preaching up here to the stuff I do out there and the kingdom stuff, and I, I couldn't do it. The, the, the truth is, my head is usually so far in the clouds uh, that, that I can't see the, the ground of practical living. And it's like I'm up there walking in this cloudiness, and Shelly has to hold my hand to direct me where I walk, because otherwise I'd stumble over myself and step on things and break things and create mayhem. And so she's just kind of... My intuition when I got married, I think, was absolutely true. Uh, and, and there's a suitable partnership that's, that's, that's beautiful. Her, I need her. Uh, I, you know, before we functioned as a dynamic duo, I could give you a, a volume of disasters that were created because we weren't working as a team. I used to do my own scheduling, for example. Disaster! It was, I, I, it was it was terrible. I would go. You know, I, I would stand up as many appointments as I made. I, I forgot things. I, you know, I, I went to the wrong conference or I went to the right conference but with the wrong lectures. Or you know, it, it, it was terrible. I would lose paychecks. It, it was it was it was just a mess. One time I had this appointment. One illustration. I was supposed to do a national t- radio interview. Uh, I was teaching at Bethel at this time and I had an interview uh, appointment. Um, I get to my office at nine o'clock. I checked my voice message, and there's a voice message there from 745 earlier that day. I said, Mr. Boyd, I want to remind you that we have an 8 o'clock appointment. You'll be on the air in 15 minutes. Please call us as soon as you get in. Five minutes later, Mr. Boyd, uh, we are reminding you about your your 8 o'clock appointment. Uh, We have a national radio live, live interview. We don't have a backup. Please call us. Two minutes before 8 o'clock. Mr. Boyd, where are you? And I'm listening to this at 9 o'clock. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. It It was terrible. It was a disaster. I think I'm the only person in Princeton Theological Seminary's history that actually stood up my own doctoral dissertation committee when I was supposed to defend it. You don't do that. I started reading Karl Barth and I I fell into it and I thought maybe an hour had passed because I had it two hours before I had to get this, this, this defense. And I look up and four hours had passed and I had missed it. And it's like, idiot! So... Believe me when I say my little life just wouldn't work without, without uh, Shelley in it. I couldn't do the research I do and the writing I do if it wasn't for Shelley um, uh, handling most of the practical matters in, in our family. Uh, you, you know, when we first got married, this will be sort to somebody, I bet. I hope. But when we first got married, uh, we, or just before we got married, we attended this Bill Gothard seminar. You remember Bill Gothard? Yeah. In the 70s, he was really big. All right. So Bill Gothard, real conservative guy, he taught that whoever controls the finances is the actual head of the family. And since the man's supposed to be the head of the family, the man should control the finances. Bad idea. But... But this is what we believe. So we get married and I'm Mr. Financial now, right? So we, within a week, we're out at Yale at, where I'm going to seminary. And my head immediately gets filled with Paul Tillich and Ponenberg and Carl and and Barth and other theologians. I'm just off in the clouds again. Uh, I don't have any brain space to worry about what kind of money we have. And actually we had almost none. It would have been pretty easy, you'd think. But, but I'm not thinking about that. Or, or how we're going to afford our next spam dinner or next macaroni and cheese dinner. Or how we're going to get laundry detergent. And how do we buy that? I, I'm not thinking about that. Now, Shelly's a normal person. So she's thinking about that. We do have to eat. And so she asked me, well, Greg, how, you know, what are the finances like? We, we, we need to get some more spam uh, for tonight. And I would say, I don't know. But don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's, it's okay. So then She says, I am worried about it. And then I get spiritual out of her. Well, Jesus says not to worry. Take over. <laughs> I'm not the brightest bulb in the room sometimes. Uh, yeah. So, so that lasted about three weeks until we finally decided that uh, for us, Bill Gothard just didn't cut it. The head of this family needed to be decapitated. So... <laughs> Shelly took over the finances. Yay, Shelly! So, so. Yay, Shelly! Get over there. So now, now you know that Shelly uh, runs my life. Now she just tells me what to do. Thank God. Uh, you got an appointment, Greg. Don't forget this. And next week, you get a conference. So, so she tells me what to do. She runs the finances and she takes care of all the practical matters in our family. Uh, so now you know who wears the pants in our family. All right. And I am a secure enough man to be able to admit that. Take the secure enough man. But you already knew I'm secure my manhood because I've already told you that I do race walking. Okay, you've got to be secure in your manhood to do that. You know that, that. <laughs> Only a real man can do that. I get calls, whistles from guys. <laughs> so when it comes to job descriptions on being a dynamic duo, how do you divide up the duties? I would encourage you not to take marching orders from Bill Gothard or from any book that tells you that there's a rule that fits all families. All right. Uh, this is this applies to every marriage because marriages are all different, you know, and, and you, we found that the less we do, the supposed to is the better off our marriage is. And maybe that's just because we're weird. But but to, to, I, when it comes to your job description of the dynamic duo, I'd write your own manual. <laughs> I would really recommend. And, and here's an idea. When it comes to, like, who's going to do what, don't think in terms of gender. Think in terms of who's actually good at it. <laughs> brilliant. It's just brilliant. It's like, oh, there's an idea. Oh, uh, yeah. And then the stuff that no one's good at, you just try to divide it up fairly. Um, it's basically to the skit and to this dicey issue. See, I bet someone's hearing this message right now, and they're thinking, well, Mr. Boyd, Bill Gothard was basing his teaching on the Bible, and your marriage is unbiblical. You're deferring a headship to your wife. Yeah, well, it works. <laughs> okay, so we've got to deal with this issue. Paul, does say that the man is the head of the wife. He's supposed to be the head of the family. Uh, the question is, what does that mean? And the question is, uh, is that a timeless teaching? All right, so let's, let's take it on. First of all, it's very important whenever dealing with a, a text that you look at the context. What's before it, what's after it. Because that affects the meaning of things. If you go back to verse 1 in Ephesians 5, the marriage piece starts in verse 21, but go back to verse 1. That really sets the theme for this whole chapter. Paul says there, to be imitators of God as beloved children. And when you imitate God as beloved children, it looks like this. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Now Paul says this to everybody, whether you're a man or a woman. Uh, This this applies to you. Everybody's to live in love. And it looks like Jesus Christ laying down his life for us. So we're to live in a way that we have with a servant spirit coming under people, uh, um, not lording over people, uh, sacrificing for others, laying down our life for others. That's to be the lifestyle of every believer. Uh, Now, then Paul goes on to start fleshing out what does that look like in different areas of our life? In the process of doing that, he comes to marriage. What does does it look like to live in love as Christ loved us and gives life for us in marriage? So the first thing he says is submit to one another uh, in reverence to Christ. Because you're following Christ, do what Christ did. So that means you're submitting to one another. Sacrifice for one another. Come under one another. And that's what we'd expect him to say because that's what it looks like when the husband and wife are both obeying Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Now, we, it's what we would expect Paul to say, but you've got to know that it, that is super radical in the first century. It's not at all radical that Paul would say, wives, submit your husbands, because they're already doing that. The culture necessitates that. What screams out, if you read this as a first century person, what screams out at you is he's saying, husbands, submit yourself to your wife," Because no one says that. No one was saying that. That is as countercultural as it gets. So he says, husbands and wives, submit to one another. That's what it looks like. Now, you also need to know that Paul is here reversing the curse. When Adam and Eve rebelled, uh, they invited a curse upon this earth, and it affected everything, including marriage. And at one point, the Lord says to Eve, this is part of the curse. He says that, that your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And God isn't saying, this is the way I want it. God is woefully declaring this is the way it's going to be because of this rebellion and this curse. Now, the word for desire that's used here, teshukah in Hebrew, it, it, it has the connotation of uh, desiring to control, to manipulate, to connive. Uh, the Lord uses it in the next chapter when He says to Cain, Cain, beware, because sin is crouching at the door. It desires you. Teshuka, same word. It desires to control you, manipulate you. It's conniving against you. So, Eve, you're going to be conniving against your husband. You're trying, to, trying, trying to get the upper hand. But the husband... Is going to rule over you. And the word there, Mashal in Hebrew, it it has the connotation of subduing something, conquering something, tyrannizing over something. So, what the Lord is saying here is that because of this catastrophe, now this beautiful plan I had to have one flesh, suitable partners working together to carry out a task, now it's going to turn into a power struggle where the woman's going to be trying to connive and, and, and get the upper hand with the man. But the man, because of his superior strength, is going to end up just brute by brute strength lording over the woman. And that sadly has been a, more or less a description of marriage throughout history. It's a power struggle. Since the woman's not as strong, she'll just use her brains on how to control the husband. The husband ends up just imposing his strength. This beautiful thing that God had, now instead of being suitable partners, you become, you, you become contending foes with one another. See, when Jesus comes into this world, he becomes our curse to end the curse. Hallelujah. The curse is done. The curse is gone. The curse has been crucified. Which means that we have been set free to now live out the beautiful design God has for marriage. Right? And, and, and what it looks like, what Paul's doing is, is he's saying, this is what it looks like to become suitable partners in the kingdom. You live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Husbands and wives doing that with one another. So it's, it's like this. Um, here's the curse. I'll show you my wonderful artistic work. In the curse, the Lord's saying, the, the woman tries to manipulate the man, but the man by brute strength lords over her. She tries harder to connive. He By brute strength, Lord's over her. So there's this like king of the hill thing going on here. Who gets to have their way? Who gets to you know, enforce their will on others? That's the curse. But what Paul is saying, here's what marriage is supposed to look like in the kingdom. You submit... To one another you submit then they submit back and you submit back to them and they submit and now you're having a race to the bottom instead of a race to the top Uh, This is what it looks like to live and love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us in in a marriage So Paul is reversing the curse And then he goes on to speak specifically to the woman and then to the man What does it look like for you to submit? All right, and so he says to the woman here. We heard it earlier with uh, the the skip He says to the woman and he uses uh, the Christ and church analogy Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Now, the interesting about this, the the distinctive thing that Paul is saying here is not wives submit to your husbands because they were already doing that. That, That's not distinctive. What's distinctive is the why and the how of how they submit. Because he says, wives, want you to submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord, as the church does to the Lord, as the church does to her savior, And we don't submit to Christ because we're afraid of his brute strength. I hope you don't. Uh, it, it shouldn't be fear that motivates us. It's what he's done for us. It's the love he demonstrated for us on Calvary that wins our heart. And so we bow before him out of love and adoration, out of gratitude for what he's done for us. Paul is saying... Let that be your motivating, motivation for submitting to your husbands. You used to do it in fear just because he's stronger, but now it should be in response to the character that he's displaying to you. Uh, submit to your, to, to, to your husbands. And that's why he goes right on now to say this to the husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives and just, as, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Husbands, you used to just lord over your wife with brute strength because you could. Uh, Now I want you to now uh, you are to live towards her the way Christ has lived towards you. You have all the power. And so you have to initiate this process of loving submission rather than brute submission. You have to initiate. You can't give down power if you don't have any. The wife has no power. Uh, she's regarded as really being owned by the husband. So she's got nothing to lay down. She's already laying it down. You have to initiate this unique kingdom thing of laying down the power because you've got it. So you've got the power. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to lord over her? You've got the privilege and the advantage. How are you going to use that? And you say, use it the way Christ did. He had all the advantages in the world. He's up in uh, the Godhead and, and enjoying bliss. But he didn't cling, Paul says in Philippians 2. He didn't cling to those advantages. He rather divested himself. He emptied himself of all of that. He gave up his power, gave up his privilege, gave up the advantage. He became a human being for our sake and then went to the cross for our sake. Husbands, do that. you got the power. Give it up. Give it up. And lay it down for your wife. Come under her. And take the initiative in doing that because you're the only one who can take the initiative in doing that. And then Paul's saying, wives, now, when your husband does that, don't take advantage of it. Like, oh, finally, he submitted to me, I get to win. Because that's still thinking, curse thinking. That's curse thinking. I'll give no rule. No. Give of all that. You respond by submitting to him. And then he submits to you and you to him. And now you've got this beautiful dance going on. So this idea of a husband being head, is, is that a timeless teaching or not? Here, you, you've got two schools of thought. On the one hand, you have egalitarians. Uh, and I align with this school of thought. Uh, in, in this way of thinking, the reason why Paul calls the husband head is because He's describing the husband in the first century. The husband was head, and it meant boss. He had all the power. So he first up his head and draws an analogy with Christ. But since now men don't have all the power, there's no reason to describe them as heads. All right? they, that, that's a first century thing. It doesn't apply in this context. On the other hand, you've got what are called complementarians. And Woodland Hills has both, even on our staff. And complementarians believe that since the analogy is with Christ and the church, and that's a timeless reality. Well, then the husband should always be head of the house. Now, from my point of view, if you are using the word head the way Paul does, that it doesn't matter. It, 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 you're, the marriage is still going to look like this. All right. If, you, if you're thinking in terms of, of, of the way Paul uses it. See, in the first century, as in much of the world today, head, it was assumed that to be head means your boss. You get to have your way. Right. Or at least you get the tie-breaking vote. All right. So that's what the concept meant. Paul takes the concept of head and he turns it on its head. It's upside down because now headship just means that you have to take the initiative on coming under your wife. And so I have dialogues with complementarians and and they want to insist on being head. Uh, The man wants to insist on uh, the head of the family. I I, I respond by saying, have at it. Wonderful. Because you are in charge. Of the Department of Self-Sacrifice. You are in charge of the Department of Initiating Submission. You are in charge of the Department of, of, of Deferring. You are in charge of the Department of Asking for Forgiveness when you have, have uh, you know squabbles. And I don't know a lot of wives who would disagree, who would object to that. You, you should take the initiative on that. And that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful model of headship. So, so it really doesn't matter. Personally, I think both should take responsibility for that. Yes. Amen. I think both should take responsibility for that. But, uh, I'm trying to disagree on that. If you, and and note this. Paul says that Christ did this for the church while the church was to make her holy and to wash her clean. In other words, Christ did this for the church when she, when the church was unholy and unclean. In fact, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So, what it means, then is that the husband, if you're wanting to take the initiative, you have to do this even when your wife is being really nasty, even when she's nagging you, and even when she's just being the worst wife in the world and she's driving you crazy and the least last thing you want to do, is even there you have to take the initiative on submitting to her to try to win her over and to make her beautiful and to make her holy and to make her clean. All right. Whether you do that, whether you both take responsibility for for that or just the husband does, it's going to look like this. And this, folks, is is... This is a beautiful kingdom. This is simply what it is. All Paul's is saying is be Christian to one another. Husbands <laughs> and wives, be Christian to one another. Be Christ-like to one another. You know, and, and it will look like submitting to one another in love rather than trying to lord it over and get, get your way. Amen. So whatever your view is, whatever your egalitarian or your hearing, I encourage you to live a, a, a kingdom marriage, not a cursed marriage. And I encourage you to see yourself as dynamic duels of the kingdom. Have a purpose that's greater than yourselves and greater than your preferences. And, and whether you're married or unmarried, know that you're here on assignment. There's a job to do, and it it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. It's about putting on display the character of God to all people at all times, no ifs, ands, and buts, living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Live a self-sacrificial life. Would you stand? I want to uh, call the prayer teams up here, and if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. Or if you're here this morning and you're not a, a follower of Jesus, Want to find out what that's about? Come up here and these folks would love to describe that to you. And I don't remember uh, if if you're not yet a prayer partner with International Justice Mission, please pick up one of the forms and fill that out and uh, enter into solidarity with with this group so we can help set some people free. Amen. Amen. In Jesus name, go out and do the mission that we've been commissioned to do. Whether married or unmarried, seek first the kingdom of God. God bless you guys. Love you.